0: Let me pray for those children as they depart and for us as we remain. (coughs) Father, every life is precious in your sight, but especially the lives of children, for you say that their angels always look on your face in heaven. And so, Lord, we pray that um, you would protect these children today, (coughs) that they would learn wonderful things in your word and in their fellowship with one another, and that you would set them on a path to follow after you all the days of their lives. Jesus' name. As we remain here, Lord, please fill our hearts with your truth and make us love and adore you. We need you. Please feed us with this word. Please fill our hearts with awe. We need to marvel. We need to wonder. We need to bow down and fall at your feet, Lord. Please uh, help our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Um, so I'm aware that we've got quite a lot of visitors today, and even among our people who are more regular, not many of you have uh, grown up in liturgical traditions, so uh, some of this is, is weird. Um, one of the great things we've inherited as part of our liturgical tradition is this church calendar that follows through the year. Uh, it traces the major milestones in the life of Jesus each year um, as we move through the course of the year, Advent, Christmas. Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. Um, And we love this calendar because it uses the flow of time itself as a teaching tool. Every year becomes like a long-running play that reenacts the life of our Lord and Savior once again to our very eyes and ears, to our hearts and our minds. Um, And in that church calendar that we follow, today we come to Trinity Sunday, as we've already said. So this is the day that we set aside in the church every year to think about God's revelation of himself as a holy trinity. And uh, for those of you who have been through the calendar a few times already, maybe when you hear this news, you inwardly groan. Uh, Maybe this is far from your favorite Sunday of the year. And right about now, you're buckling up and stealing yourself for a long-winded, confusing odyssey through heresies and bad analogies to arrive at a conclusion you kind of already knew and didn't much care about in the first place. (laughs) So if this is not your favorite Sunday of the church calendar, then perhaps that's because this great and wonderful doctrine of the Trinity has been handed down to us through the ages, through a long and hard-fought battle. Um, And therefore it comes into our hands as a somewhat battered doctrine, bruised by centuries of attack and ridicule and scorn. And so what I want to do today is um, to sort of throw out all the rubbish associated with the Trinity, uh, the bad analogies, and, and I want us to really remember and to see again that it is beautiful, that it is holy and unspeakably precious, that it is a revelation that has come to us from the deep heart of Almighty God, and it is a pearl, not to be thrown before swine, but kept safe with the saints as a sacred secret. So I want to take us today to John chapter 14, where the revelation of God as Holy Trinity emerges more clearly and magnificently than at any time thus far in the story. John 14 is page 901 of the church Bibles. You can turn there now, John chapter 14. Strictly speaking, this is not part of our sermon series in the Gospel of John, This is separate. We're going to come back to John 14 in the fall when we get to it um, as part of our sermon series. But I want to give us a sneak peek, look ahead in the story at John 14, page 901. We're going to start at verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So right there in verse 16, we can find the Holy Trinity together in a single verse. I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And this is far from the only place in Scripture where we find the Holy Trinity together in a single verse or passage. Scholars often find them together in the very first three verses of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1. God created, the Spirit hovered over the waters, and God spoke his creation by his holy word, the Logos. After that, the Spirit of God shows up often in the Old Testament, as does the Son of God, also called the Servant of the Lord, the Seed of David, or the Righteous Branch. And on into the New Testament, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present together at the baptism of Jesus, where the Father speaks his blessing and the Spirit descends as a dove. Jesus has already taught his disciples in this Gospel of John that I and the Father are one. So there's plenty of evidence for God as Trinity to be found in Scripture before John 14, but here we do find something new and special. This is the last night of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. The parables and figures of speech disappear, and he speaks plainly. The setting is intimate, a cozy dinner reclining together together, John has his head upon the Savior's breast, hearing the Savior's heart. And he records for us here the outpouring of the Savior's heart. What has been hinted and sketched before is finally laid plain. And I want to talk about it today under three headings love, equality, and unity. Love, equality, and unity. These are three things that I will argue are only possible in our world because God is Trinity. So first there's love, that many splendid thing. The theme of love is unmissable in this passage. It begins and ends with love. Verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. In between is verse 21. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And to that promise, Jesus then adds in verse 23, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So there are lots of different ways that the Bible talks about love. Love in suffering looks like patience. Love in response to need looks like kindness. Love in answer to confession is forgiveness. And the greatest of all loves is self-sacrifice. But here, as Jesus discloses the burning heart of love, what we find is simple togetherness. He says, we will make our home with him. So the goal of love is just to be together, everlastingly at home with the beloved, locked in an eternal dance of joy. Jesus, in this passage, is eager to return home to his father. In verse 28, he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the father And we know that journey was going to take him through crucifixion. And yet he was overjoyed to be going home. So we learn from these words that God eternally exists in three persons identified as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And between these three persons burns the eternal fire of divine love. And that is a love that we ourselves are invited into. So love, we have concluded, and all our art and music is the best thing in the world. Ain't no doubt in no one's mind that love's the finest thing around. All you need is love, and I don't care too much for money, because money can't buy me love. (laughs) And yet, from what fountain does this most precious of all things spring? It's hard to imagine its origin in either polytheism or monotheism. Polytheism, with its factious, warring, rival gods, knows very little about love, and would not likely seed us with this precious gift. And monotheism, when it imagines a single, eternal being alone, ought to find its own trouble with the existence of love. Since love is, by its nature, interpersonal, how could it exist in a God who was only one person? Was it somehow inscribed into his character without an object so that he lived in unfulfilled loneliness for all eternity until he created others to satisfy his own need for interpersonal love? Or was his love self-reflective like Narcissus? And if so, why is that same behavior deemed unhealthy, subhuman, and even wicked in the creatures made in his image? These thoughts are speculative and they deal with non-realities, but they do show us why the truth is so good and glorious and why it's consistent with reality as we experience it every day. We know love and we treasure love and we have love written into the core of our beings because we are created in the image of the God of love, the God who is love. We are monotheists, there is only one God, but the God who is and who made us eternally exists in three persons, eternally burning with interpersonal love, like the love we know. And therefore, he did not exist in eternal loneliness before he made creatures, but in an eternal, joyful dance of love. So we are not made to scratch God's itch and fulfill his own need for company Instead, we are created out of the generous, vibrant overflow of inter-Trinitarian love, which is far more glorious. And yet more glorious still is God's invitation that we enter into his love, that we enter into that love, his invitation to be enfolded into his eternal dance of love that has been going on for all eternity. We are hungry for that, aren't we? We are lonely people. Loneliness is the great epidemic of our modern times, says the Surgeon General, and also says the British government, which recently created a new cabinet position called the Minister of Loneliness. It <laughs> did, it's true, look it up. They've had three in five years, and none of them have done anything. Um, so in answer to your own loneliness, I set before your gaze the Holy Trinity, when the early Christian theologians reached to describe the glory of Trinitarian love, they lighted on this Greek word perichoresis, perichoresis. They borrowed a word out of Greek culture. Perichoresis is the name of an intricate wedding dance, a dance that gets faster and faster until the dancers become a blur of life and love and movement. And the early theologians said, yes, it's something like that. In the house of God, there's dancing. And Jesus promises to bring us into that house of God. He says, we will make our home with him. So my wife, Sarah, once wrote an article that included a discussion of perichoresis. And she used the illustration of a family hug. Parents, uh, maybe you've had this experience where husband and wife have a little cuddle in the kitchen. And one of the children runs in to join in the hug to squeeze herself into the middle of it, to get into the midst of that exchange of love and affection. That's our invitation from Jesus in John 14, to squeeze ourselves into the middle of the eternal Trinitarian hug. So first, the Trinity is the root and source of all the love on earth. Now second, let's talk about equality. And here I do wanna get a little bit more theological, Uh, And I want to look at a portion of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, So in the piece in front of you are the black Bibles and also the red prayer books. you probably never looked at these before, but grab the prayer books, and we're going to turn right to the back. It's page 769 in those prayer books. Um, We have the Athanasian Creed. So uh, in our tradition, we've been uh, handed three great creeds. There's the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, the three that we acknowledge. Uh, so the first two of those we say regularly in our services. Uh, we don't say the Athanasian Creed, but only because it's very long. <laughs> um, but it's especially good and clear on the subject of the Trinity. And a lot of churches do say it together on Trinity Sunday. So I'm going to do part of it. Um, so flip the page to 770, the second page of the Athanasian Creed. And we're going to start seven lines down with the line that begins, So the Father. These great words synthesize biblical revelation about the Trinity. It says, so the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be both God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one father, not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after other, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. I wonder if any of you have seen that hilarious Lutheran satire video about St. Patrick's bad analogies. Um, He goes through all the various physical analogies used for the Trinity, the the three-leaf shamrock and the the ice and water and illustration. All of his illustrations fall into heresy, and they take him back to the Athanasian Creed. Um, This this is our standard for thinking about the Trinity. Um, So what Jesus said when he said, I and the Father are one, and what Paul said when he said he, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, is spelled out clearly here in the Athanasian Creed that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, and this reality should be allowed to define what our view of human equality is because we are in God's image, and what equality means for God, it means for us. So, earlier we heard the mighty words of Genesis 1, read into our hearing, and these are the words that give us our place and our identity. Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We discover in these early verses of the Bible that the image of God is male and female, Therefore, all that we mean by maleness and all that we mean by femaleness is included in God. Male and female is designed to marry, as we learn in the second chapter of Genesis, so that the two will become one flesh. And that mystical union reflects the mystery of the Trinity itself. And we conclude that since the persons of the Trinity are equal, so the persons of the human family are equal, In the same way with one another. Men are equal with women, children are equal with adults, all races and ethnicities are in the same way equal, the born are equal with the unborn, the able-bodied are equal with the non-able-bodied and non-able-minded, the wealthy are equal with the destitute, the governors equal with the governed and the elderly equal with the young this message will meet with no opposition in this room because it's very popular in our culture today it's safe to put it on a bumper sticker or wear it on a t-shirt but not so fast I came to this conclusion from the starting point of the Holy Trinity and from our creation in God's image in Genesis chapter 1 and if you haven't started where I started I don't think you can arrive where I've arrived not truly not honestly Thomas Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're fine words and a great foundation for a country, but they are, in fact, very, very far from being (laughs) self-evident. You've got to prove it. The equality of all humanity was not self-evident to any nation under heaven before Jesus, and even after Jesus, it was maybe the very last lesson to be learned on the earth. It was not self-evident to Nebuchadnezzar or Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Ivan the Terrible or Attila the Hun or Henry VIII or Karl Marx or Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or pretty much anybody else who's ever shepherded the beliefs of the world. There remains a very great and sincere need to prove it. And atheists and polytheists have no reasonable way to prove it at all. If they like the idea of human equality, they must hang it in the air like a sky city. And even monotheists who believe in the image of God should have much more trouble than they do proving equality. For why should there be in creation that which does not exist in the creator? If it is not of him, then it must be a corruption of him. Because there's nothing else for anything to come from. And God has no equal. Nothing is less equal than a single-person God in an empty eternity. So equality would more logically belong in the category of what is not God, of what is a corruption of God, than of what is like him. So perhaps that is why Islam, when it is truly practiced, subjugates and silences women, demeans children, and is violent toward the infidel. Human equality needs proof. And I find none outside of the glorious holy trinity. Co-equal and co-eternal is the foundation stone. That is why we believe in human equality, because it is like our maker. And therefore, it should get to define what equality is. We should understand our equality on the basis of Trinitarian equality. Therefore, equality does not mean sameness since the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not the same. In John chapter 14, Jesus says in verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Once again, the Trinity appears together in a single verse. One is sending, one is being sent, one in whose name he is sent. They're distinct, they're not the same. In verse 28, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. And we have to meditate on what that means. It's not greater in dignity, divinity, glory, or eternity, because all these things are shared by the Son. So maybe it's greater in rank, in role, or when it comes to the Son's incarnate human nature, as the Athanasian Creed says later on. But Jesus is clear in verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me. So the giving and receiving of commands within the Trinity does not remove its essential equality. And we should understand our human equality in the same way. It is founded on this rock, and we are in God's image. So all men, women, and children are equal. Yes, all lives must be dignified, honored, and defended. But men are not the same as women and should not pretend to be the same. And there there are proper God-given roles within the human family. Children must honor their parents. Wives submit to their husbands, citizens to their governments, workers to their employers, soldiers to their commanding officers. None of this in any way erases human equality, for it does not in the Trinity. And the Trinity is our model, first for love and next for equality. There is so much more to say on that subject, but that's all I have time for today. I've laid a foundation stone. Now finally, let's talk about unity. Jesus hints at this subject in verse 20 when he promises, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. But then Jesus gets much clearer a couple of chapters later on. So let's flip the page in the Bible to John 17 and verse 20. John 17 verse 20. And I want us to see this before we close. Jesus, on the last night of his life, prays for his 12 disciples, and then he adds in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So in other words, he's praying for everyone who believes in him because of the words of John and Peter and Matthew and Luke and Paul. That that includes me. Does that include you? Yes, surely it includes every Christian in every nation in the world, living or dead, And Jesus prays this for us in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He prays, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Surely this prayer stops nothing short of asking for the unity of the Trinity itself to be shared with the family of faith. Would anyone but Jesus dare to pray this prayer? Jesus asks his Father on the night he prepares to go to the cross that we would be as unified with our Father, with our God, as the Father is with the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 21 he prays, they also may be in us. Jesus prays unity for his church. First, that we would be reconciled with God, and then also, subsequently and naturally, that we would also be reconciled with one another. Verse 21 that they may all be one. This is wonderfully exciting news. This is where the church is heading. Because surely the father will answer the son's prayer. Will any power of hell or Satan stop that prayer from being answered? So in which of your relationships are you struggling right now? Husbands, has your love for your wife failed? Have you stopped pursuing unity with her? Are you close to giving up? Jesus prayed and is praying for you, that you and your wife would be one, even as the Father and the Son are one, that you have the power of the Holy Trinity behind your marriage. Can you be reconciled? Fathers, do you love your sons? Or has a root of bitterness grown up between you to separate and estrange you? Jesus prayed and is praying for you that you and your children would be one as the Father and the Son are one. Can you be reconciled? And daughters to mothers and mothers-in-law, and each of us to our enemies, to those who have wounded us, insulted us, spread rumors, or given us the cold shoulder, Jesus died not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. And his work on earth will not be finished until his prayer is answered. And everything in heaven and on earth is brought together under one head and brought within the embrace of the Holy Trinity, within the perichoresis, eternal dance of love, everything that is redeemed by the cross of Jesus. That's what Jesus had in mind when he made us, and he will not be satisfied until it is as he intended, love and joy and peace on the earth. All this we know because God is Trinity. And on this solid foundation, we anchor love, equality, and unity. Within the human family, these are treasures that have no other foundation and no other hope. So what begins as a mathematical puzzle, Trinity in unity, and unity in Trinity, turns away away some people in confusion and others in scorn but it turns out to be the precious heart of Almighty God that answers far more mysteries than it creates and fills our hearts with worship. As the hymn says, Holy author, holy word, holy spirit, three we name thee. Still one holy voice is heard, undivided God, we claim thee. Then adoring, bend the knee and confess the mystery.